Good morning. Welcome to Gathering Church. My name is Matthew, one of the elders here. Glad that uh, the Lord's brought us together this morning. Uh, As we get started here, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, but I've got a bit of an early Christmas present for you. Just want to make you aware of some uh, great new resources that have come out, potential great gifts for your kids for Christmas. Get it done early, folks. This is a book called The Moon is Always Round, written by Jonathan Gibson. It's great. i give this to you now if your kid's in the room. You can just come get it later. Jonathan Gibson, The Moon is Always Round. Greg, you only got like 36 days left till Christmas. That's good. This is a second series. This is a series of books called Buster's, uh, this guy named, this, this guy, <laughs> this rabbit named Buster. This one's called Buster's Ears Trip Him Up. It's a whole series of books that just point kids to the gospel, point kids to Jesus. If you like this book, raise your hand, Amy. Come get them later, or maybe Mr. Edmonds can come bring them to you. <laughs> Thanks, Mr. Edmonds. Uh, Greg Anderson, yeah. One of the uh, interesting parts of being a pastor is that uh, a lot of references come by my desk. Oftentimes you need a reference uh, if you're going to go to a Christian university. You need a pastor's reference. Uh, some of you are involved in Samaritan uh, healthcare ministries, and it says you need a pastor reference that says you actually come to church here, so you make sure you come the three previous weeks before you give me the, the form. And, <laughs> and I sign it and say that you're actually a member at this church. What's interesting, though, about the nature of references is that they're different from a job interview because we know that in an interview you can most of us can fleece someone for about an hour but a reference uh, is someone that's known some somebody for a long period of time and they can attest to their character they can attest to who they are they can attest to a track record and so on an interview can only give us a small picture into who somebody is but always check your references right if you're a landlord if you own a rental you know Always check your references unless you want to be uh, cleaning up dog poop off the carpet when they move out. Always check your references, references versus interviews. Because in interviews, it's easy to display a level of hypocrisy. In interviews, it's much easier to display a level of hypocrisy than it is with the reference. And so what we have this morning is we have Jesus who's been watching these Pharisees for some time now. And he's going to speak to their hypocrisy. This is not just a a glance that he's had on them for about an hour or so in an interview. He's been watching throughout the course of his ministry the character and the nature of these Pharisees. And this is going to be Jesus' final public teaching. Matthew chapter 23. This is his final public teaching. After this, everything else will be in private. After this, everything else will be among his disciples and in private conversations. And what Jesus does here in his final public teaching, remember, as we've been these last couple weeks, he's in the temple. He's coming to the temple a couple weeks ago, and he cleansed it. He overturned the money changers' tables and so on. And last week, we went through three different parables where he explained who he was. They were trying to trip him up, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and a lawyer. And at the end of the time that he was teaching each of those, they walked away amazed and astonished. They didn't know what to do with him. They were confounded by this man's teaching. And this morning, in Matthew chapter 23, he's going to pronounce a woe 
a judgment against the religious hypocrites of his day. There's something about the nature of this hypocrisy. Because to us, oftentimes the hypocrisy we see as human beings is we see that life and lip don't match up. Life and lip don't match up. The way someone acts and the way they talk doesn't match up. And it bothers us. And it bothers us deeply sometimes. But the kind of hypocrisy that we're going to see here is only the kind of hypocrisy that God can see. The hypocrisy that Jesus points out and draws out this morning is only the kind of hypocrisy that can offend God alone. Because it's the hypocrisy of the heart. It's the hypocrisy of the heart. And only God can see the heart. It's easy to see inconsistencies in other people. But I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. Okay? It's going to be hard. It's going to be very difficult. It's not easy. But try this morning to not think about anybody else. Try this morning to not consider the inconsistencies in other people. Instead, I want to encourage you, challenge you even, invite you to just think about yourself today. It's hard to do. Trust me, I've been with this text all week. But God is speaking to you this morning about you. God is going to speak to you this morning from his word, not about how you relate to your neighbor necessarily, but God wants to speak to you this morning about you. In some ways, we could almost say, relax. Feel the freedom and the safety to just consider yourself. For the next 40 minutes, you don't need to worry about everybody else's hypocrisy. Just worry about your own. You know, there's a typo here. I, actually, I often don't, don't tell you the typos in my notes, but the typo here says, for the next 450 minutes, you don't need to worry about <laughs> Would you read the text with me? Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have a few Bibles that are available for you. They're under the seat in front of you. I encourage you to take a Bible out and read along with me. If you're looking at a pew Bible, this text will be on page 828. 828. If you don't have a Bible, uh, consider this our gift to you. You can take this home. If you'd like a leather-bound one, there's probably one up in the lost and found. Feel free to take one of those as well. <laughs> All right, Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples... The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, God, that you've given this text to us. And we pray, God, that you would prepare our hearts to look at our own hypocrisy and to see the magnificent and beautiful and gracious ways that Jesus Christ, our Savior, comes to us to both confront us and to comfort us. We pray that we would be rebuked and encouraged. 
We pray all this for the glory of your son's name and for his fame in all the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've said last week, Jesus, or a couple weeks ago, Jesus cleansed the temple. He's been called Messiah. This is the long-awaited king of Israel. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the long-awaited servant. This is the long-awaited king of Israel that's finally come to his people. And he's been received by many as such. He's been received as many as the one who will save. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, son of David, save us. All these words, these people are acknowledging and declaring who this man is. This is the promised one that has come to the people of Israel. But not everybody. Not the religious leaders. Not the religious leaders. As we said last week, we looked at three descriptions of Jesus. And at the end of Matthew chapter 22, verse 46, we see the final reply of the Pharisees. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The response of the Pharisees is a deafening silence. Nothing. They don't see who he actually is now. They don't repent of their wickedness. They don't repent of the way they've been acting. They don't turn to him. They don't cry like the crowds did. Hosanna, son of David, save us. They just shut their mouths. It's a deafening, indicting, woeful, damnable silence. So what is Jesus doing here in these first three verses? Jesus is handing down a judicial verdict of sorts. Look at what he says in this text. He says that these Pharisees have put themselves in the metaphorical seat of Moses. These Pharisees have put themselves in the metaphorical seat of judge and king. They've put themselves in charge. The rightful king of Israel, see the irony The rightful king, the true Messiah, the one who's coming to the people is standing in front of them and they're the ones that are sitting in judgment. Don't let the context, don't 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 miss the context about the importance of what is going on here. Jesus is standing in his temple. The king is in his temple preparing to hand down judgment. The king of Israel was supposed to be a man who is deeply connected to the temple. The king was one who was deeply and had a close and very intimate relationship with God. The king was to be one who longed after God's own heart, as Israel's greatest king, David, did. The king was to care very deeply and intimately about the worship and the praise of God. As you may know, the king, in fact, was required to memorize the Torah and was even to have his own handwritten copy. He was to be intimately and deeply concerned with the worship of God in the temple. So this is the rightful king of Israel standing in his temple and he's pronouncing judgment on those who are sitting in his chair. You're in my seat. They are posers and hypocrites. They are posers and hypocrites. So let's break this text down in three sections as a very good Baptist sermon would do. Verses 1 to 12 is Jesus' call to not imitate these hypocrites. Verses 13 to 36 are the pronouncements of woe and judgment. And verses 36 to 39 is Jesus weeping over his people. 1 to 12. 
13 to 36, 36 to 39. Warning, woe, weeping. Warning, woe, weeping. So let's read 2 to 12 now. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You are all brothers. And call no man father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be called your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what fundamentally do we learn here about the religious leaders? Fundamentally, we learn here about the religious leaders that they, they lived in the fear of man rather than in the fear of God. And that's the first warning. They live in the fear of man rather than in the fear of God. The piety that they display, the piety that they show everybody was for outward appearance. It was to be seen by everybody else. It was to receive the praises of men. They loved the public praise of other people. You know, it says here in verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Everything they do, all of their religious practices, all of their religious habits, isn't to be seen by God because they fear and love God. It's because they fear and desire the respect of other human beings. Everything that they do, verse 5 says, all their deeds are to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. These are the garments that Jews were to wear. They're things that the phylacteries came off your arm and they had the scriptures written on them and so on and so forth. And long fringes, they wanted to be seen in their ceremonial garb. They wanted to be seen in their ceremonial robes so that they could be praised by other people. Their piety, their religiosity was so that they would be praised and seen by other people people. Verse 4 says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. What that means is that they, 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 they multiply laws and regulations. They add and they add and they add. And Jesus uses the imagery here of a pack animal and the weight and the burden that they put on people. They desire other people's failures to be highlighted. They put burdens on people. Why else would you put burdens on other people? You put burdens on other people so that their failures are highlighted, so that they can't do it, so that your successes are seen and shine through all the more brighter. And this is the model that Jesus holds up to condemn. He's saying, don't be like this, don't be like them. Don't be hypocrites. But look at this. This is striking to me. Think about this for a moment. What is the opposite of 
hypocrisy. What should we expect Jesus to teach here? If Jesus is giving a condemnation and a judgment and a woe against hypocrisy, what should we expect him to say in contrast? Let me put it to you this way. If I said to you, these people are lazy, you don't want to be like them, therefore be, don't be lazy, be diligent. The opposite of being lazy is to be diligent. But that's not what Jesus does. The contrast to hypocrisy would most naturally be consistency. The contrast to don't be a hypocrite would most naturally and likely be consistency. Don't be a hypocrite. Be consistent. Have your life match up with your lip. But that's not what he does. He contrasts hypocrisy and instead he gives us humility. He gives us humility. Look at verses 8 to 10. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have, no, you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have uh, the one instructor, the Christ, the Messiah. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There it is. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, but whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You realize what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, don't go after the pursuit of these titles. Don't go after the pursuit of these accolades from other people. I don't think on one hand he's saying, you can't call your dad, dad, right? It's not what he's, that's not necessarily what he's saying. But he's saying, don't seek the accolade and the praise that comes from having these kinds of titles, these positions in life, being called an elder in the church, being called a pastor, being called a deacon, being called a business owner, a CEO. Don't seek that kind of stuff. Don't seek your honor and your worth and your value in that kind of stuff. Don't do it. He says, because he who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, there's great mercy in this text here. He said, you have a father. You have a father, God the Father in heaven who loves you and adores you. You have a master and a teacher. You have Jesus. You have an instructor. He says, it's the approval that God gives is the only one that ultimately matters. It's not that humility is unconcerned with obedience. That's not the point. It's not that humility is not concerned with obedience, but there's a certain kind of lack of obedience that says kind of a woe is me mentality and then walks away. But a true humility sees a lack of obedience and sees the sin in our own hearts and our own lives and desires to change. True humility sees how far we've actually fallen from God. The pride, pride rears its ugly head Because it assumes that the praises of men are greater than the praises of God. But humility. 
Humility sees that God's acceptance can only come from sheer grace. The result of pride, here's something that's counterintuitive, okay? But it's true. This text is teaching it. The result of pride sees the acceptance that comes from the praise of men and therefore makes us slaves of men. Let me say that again. The result of pride sees that acceptance comes from the praise of men and therefore we become slaves of men. We are slaves to their praise. And so we live our lives in this constant echo chamber of looking like something to be praised by other people. The thing that we actually desire, which is their accolades, which comes from our pride, actually leads to our slavery to them. But the result of humility sees that acceptance only comes from the pronouncement of God. And therefore, we're not slaves of men, but we're servants of our neighbors. It's counterintuitive, but humility, seeing ourselves as sinners, not finding our praise and our worth in the accolades and praises of men, but seeing that our acceptance is only by a pronouncement of grace from God, results in us that we are no longer slaves of men. We are slaves of God, and therefore we can actually be servants of our neighbors. Prior to that, we can't be servants of our neighbors. Prior to that, we're using our neighbors. We're using our neighbors in order to boost ourselves and boast our ego and pride. We're using everything around us. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. And that's what Jesus is saying is so awful and wicked. He's saying you're using other people. You're using other people, you religious leaders, you who were sent to the people to lead them and to guide them to God, to bring them to the throne of God. You're standing in the temple and you're using everybody around you in order to bring praise and value to yourself. And the irony of the whole thing is you're a slave to them. So let me apply this to us. Non-Christian friends, if you're here this morning, have you ever considered the freedom that could come by acknowledging your unworthiness before God? Have you ever considered the freedom that could actually come by admitting your unworthiness before God? Only by admitting your unworthiness before Him can you receive His mercy and grace. To call him father, to call him teacher, instructor, master, friend, can only come by admitting your own unworthiness. This is not a standard that you will find anywhere else in the entire world. But your acceptance can come. Your freedom can come by admitting your own unworthiness before him. Let me address a small group in this church, brother elders, Brian, Trevor, James, Dan, myself. What does this text have to say to us? 
This text should remind us that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Is our ministry individually and is our ministry corporately marked by humility and approachability? Do the members of this church know that we have one master, Jesus the Christ? What could we do today? What could we do this week so that we would be known as the humblest in the congregation, individually and as a group? And Christian friends, brothers and sisters, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I was writing a sermon, and this this is the phrase that the Lord brought to my mind. That sometimes we need to be rebuked into grace. Sometimes we need to be rebuked into grace. It's like the Bob Newhart counseling model, right? Right? Bob Newhart counseling model, they come in and he just says, stop it. Stop doing that. Sometimes we just need a fresh rebuke of grace in our face. And this text in verse 11 and 12 is giving it to us. Humble yourself and you will be exalted. Humble yourself and you will be exalted. Humble yourself. Humble yourself and you will be exalted. Admit your unworthiness. Admit that you don't have it together. Admit you're wrong sometimes. Maybe your relationships are messed up because you can't admit that you're wrong sometimes. Maybe there's divisions in your marriage. Maybe there's divisions in your other relationships outside the church because you can't humble yourself. You need to experience, though, this rebuke of grace. God is saying to you, when you admit your unworthiness, then my grace has a conduit to come into your life. Pride is like a stopper to that conduit of God's grace coming into your life. But humility, admittance of wrong, saying, maybe I don't see it the way everybody else sees it, is the actual conduit by which God's grace can come into your life. Maybe it will be 450 minutes. (laughs) So that's point one. That's the warning. That's the warning. Point two, the woes. Let's read it together. We're going to read 13 all the way to 36, I think. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, he's twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath, you blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that's made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. 
And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tied the mint and the dill and the cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and, then, and the plate, then that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear, appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we'd lived in those days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Yeah, that's interesting. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Seven woes in this passage. Seven woes in this passage. Six times he calls them hypocrites. This is the, some of the strongest and hardest language that passes Jesus' lips. It's probably the strongest in all the Gospels. He really gave it to him. He laid it on thick. If you're new to the, the scriptures, you're new to the Bible, this isn't normal even for Jesus to speak so strongly and condemn people so overtly. Why does he resort to such language? Why does he push so hard in this text? Well, the first two of these woes show us a particular kind of danger. You see, they would have known that these kinds of woes have come before. They would have known that in places like Isaiah, there's, 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 woes for, there's six woes there for, 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 for being a lawbreaker, for being a drunkard, for being a greedy swindler, and so on. And these teachers, these Pharisees, would have gone about teaching the law. They would have gone about teaching these different kinds of provisions that we would have seen from the book of Isaiah and other places, and so on. But they do something here. They add to the law. They were so concerned with outward appearance that they begin to add to the law. So, for example, we know in the Ten Commandments that we're commanded to never take God's name in vain, correct? Well, the Pharisees would extrapolate that out and be so concerned with an outward appearance that they would say, just don't ever use his name at all. They were so concerned that the, the name would be taken in vain that they would begin to add these rules and regulations to the law itself and say, don't ever even take it at all. 
And they were so concerned about breaking an oath that some said, well, therefore, don't ever even take an oath. And some were so concerned, there's, there's, there's pages and pages that are written to describe whether an oath has been broken or not, with extenuating circumstances and so on. It's like milking a cat, you know what I'm saying? Probably not. They wanted the people to be ready, okay? They thought by adding and adding and adding and adding, by adding continued hedges around the law, the people would be ready. We do that too. There is a particular tendency, particularly in a conservative church, to continue to read hedges and hedges around what God's word has actually said. There is a way in which we add to God's law. We have a desire within us to make ourselves right and ready. There's a tendency to make things that we could call community standards. Community standards that this is just not what we do around here. And those that don't do that or do that are some, you know, they're kind of like, okay, well, you, you don't get, we don't do that around here. But we are never to go beyond what God's word has given us. We could apply that to homeschooling. We can compli- apply that to the consumption of alcohol. We could co- apply that to a lot of different things. That we add measures, we add hedges to God's revealed word in order to give us a sense of protection. But it's a false sense of protection. The result, Jesus says in verse 13, is the opposite of what they seem to desire to do. He says that they shut the kingdom in men's faces. He says in verse 15 that the result of this is that he makes these people twice as much a children of hell as they are. He calls them in verse 16, he says, you're blind guides. You don't get it. You absolutely don't understand this. So what happens? Verse 19 and 20 to 22, you blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes this gift sacred? Whoever swells by the altar swears by everything that's on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Okay? He's saying you don't even understand the nature of the revealed word to you. These things aren't talking about just their tangible earthly expression. They're pointing us to something far greater, a far greater reality than you guys even understand. It's about the one who the temple represents. It's about the one who the table represents. It's about the one whom the gold represents. It's about the praise and honor of God. The people needed leaders to lead them to God. They needed leaders that would lead them to savor and celebrate the beauty and the glory of God. To show them the one by whom everything is pointing to. Not to add more and more laws and more and more restrictions and more and more regulations and put a burden like a pack animal on the people. They needed leaders who would point them to rest in the beauty and mercy of God. They needed leaders who would say, don't you understand what the temple is talking about? The temple is about our connection place, our meeting place. God has made a provision whereby we can draw near to him. Don't you see that the table, this sacrifice, this official table, we put the blood of the, of the lamb on it, means that God is making a propitiation for our sin. God is making a way for us to be right with him again. That's the kind of leaders that they needed, and that's not the kind of leaders that they had. So beware to apply this. 
Beware of preachers and teachers who seem to know God's word, but don't seem to know the God therein. Beware of preachers and teachers and leaders who seem to know God's word, but don't seem to know the God behind them all. Beware, it's easy. It's easy to get impressive accolades. It's easy to learn original languages. It's easy to get degrees. It's easy to know how to translate from the originals and so on, but it has nothing to do with being a teacher and a leader. It has very little to do with being a teacher and a leader. So brothers and sisters, when we consider new leaders in this church, new elders, when it comes time to plant a church, or when you move from this place and God leads you on to another congregation, what are you going to ask yourself? Ask yourself this, does this man know God? Does this man know God? When we put an elder forward in this congregation, that's the first question you need to ask yourselves. Does this man know God? Does his lifestyle, his pattern of life, the way he lives, when I talk to him, do I feel encouraged to live more for God? Am I encouraged back to the scriptures? Am I encouraged to turn to Jesus for all my hope and rescue and refuge? That's the first question you must ask yourself. Does this man celebrate and display the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ in his life? Does this man help me follow Jesus Christ more? Because that's what this text is saying. They didn't know. They knew every jot and tittle of the law. They knew what an articular or an arthritis infinitive noun was or verb was. (laughs) But they didn't know the God behind it. They didn't know the God behind it. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. You catch that? They tithe mint, dill, and cumin. Okay? Has anybody ever grown mint? Okay, if you ever want to feel really good about yourself and your green thumb, grow mint. All right? Just, it'll just go everywhere. Just, you can come to my yard, you can take like a mint root, you can just open your back window and just throw it in the backyard. And you'll have a mint garden by June, all right? It just proliferates. These guys were tithing off their mint, which means they were taking the meticulous effort to count out leaves of mint and leaves of dill, all right? To say they were majoring on the minors is an understatement. They were majoring on the minors. They were tithing off, they were counting their mint leaves. All right? It was a meticulous law keeping. It was a meticulous kind of law keeping that absolutely didn't understand grace. They were certainly not known as those that lived loose lives. They were known as the most outwardly righteous people around. And the shocking part is that Jesus calls the obvious law keepers the hypocrites. Jesus calls the most obvious of all law keepers, those that would even count out leaves of mint, the hypocrites. They were not, ultimately, verse 25, keepers of the law. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are clean outside the you clean the outside in the cup, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. 
You got to clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside might also be clean. He says you're whitewashed tombs. You clean the outside, but inside you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So verse 28, you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They were lawless. He calls the people that have the most outward righteousness lawless. You have no law about you. You're wicked. You count out mint in your kitchen, and you're a lawless man. How could this possibly be? How could this possibly be? They lost, they absolutely lost perspective. Verse 23, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Everything became about box checking. Everything became about outward appearances. Everything became about doing everything right, and they were dead inside. Isn't that kind of scary? We can do everything which seems on outward appearances to be right and be absolutely dead inside. We can be whitewashed tombs that are full of dead bones. We can have clean plates and be absolutely dirty on the inside. But it does speak to a great reality that every single human being needs to deal with. Because the problem, as we said at the beginning, is not an outward problem. The problem is a problem of the heart. And what are you going to do about a dirty heart? What are you going to do about a dirty heart? Counting mint leaves isn't going to fix a dirty heart. Listen to Psalm 50. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. It's mine anyway. I made the mint leaf grow. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your sacrifices. What you need from God is the cleansing of our hearts. You need something from him. He has everything. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your tithe. He doesn't need your sacrifice. He needs you to come to him to clean your heart so that you can give it back to him. So non-Christian friends, what does this mean for us? It means that the requirements of God's law, what God's law requires is perfection. God's law requires perfection. And not just perfection in action. It requires perfection in motive. It requires perfection from the heart. Perfection in the reason why we do things. A perfection of heart inside that overflows to actions outside. And that is a standard and that is a bar that no human being has ever accomplished. That is a standard, that is a bar that no human being, even in what seems to be some of our most altruistic motives. When I wake up at four in the morning and the baby's crying 
there's a big part of my motive that just wants that baby to go back to sleep so that I can go back to sleep. My main motive isn't this child needs nourishment right now. It's part of my motive. But a big part of my motive is like, I want to be asleep right now, you one-year-old child. God's law, God's law requires a perfection of the inside that overflows to the outside. And to fail at any point, internal or external, is to be a lawbreaker. So what strikes the most fear in your heart right now? That people might find out what you're really like? Or the certainty that God already knows? We can clean up everything on the outside, but our hearts don't change. The only thing that can change our hearts is for something to come from the outside in. And that's a miraculous work of God by the power of His Holy Spirit to give you a new heart. That's what conversion is. That's what it means to become a Christian. We use words like conversion, regeneration, born again. It means that God will remove this heart that does not desire and seek to obey Him. And He will actually give you a new heart, which you know, means a new set of affections, a new set of desires, a heart that now seeks to honor him and please him and see him and savor him. That's what it means to be converted. And if God is moving in your heart this morning, if there's a stirring in your heart this morning to turn in faith and trust to him, then that's God moving first in your heart because you need God to move first in your heart. And if that's happening this morning, if you're sitting there and you're saying, maybe there is something to this Jesus. Maybe there is some affection in my heart towards him. Praise God because he's doing a work in you right now. And respond in faith and trust to him. You come talk, can, talk, can come talk to me or any of the other elders. We'll have people up here for prayer after our service. We'll be happy to talk to you about that. What it would mean to repent of your sin and to give your life and your heart to Jesus Christ. Let's move on to the last woe. The seventh woe. And then we'll come to a close in verses 37 to 39. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we'd lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. (laughs) You realize what they're saying there. They're saying... We're better. We're better than our fathers of old. Because when God would send them prophets, what they would do is they would bind them and they would kill them and sometimes they would crucify them. And they're saying, in a damnable irony, if we would have been there, we wouldn't have done it. Because what's standing right in front of their face is the final, true prophet. And they are saying, in deep irony, we would not have been like our fathers. And the true prophet standing right in front of them, and they're about to do the exact same thing. It's a murderous kind of pride when this final messenger comes to them. This final messenger comes to them to speak this very last chance, and they're not going to hear it. And they say, in the midst of it, in the midst of it, they say, if we would have been like our fathers back then, we wouldn't have done it. They're doing it. They're doing it. They're doing it. 
Verse 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Like father, like son, he just said. You are witnessing against yourself. You are doing the very thing that your fathers did. Like father, like son. Woe to you, Pharisees. They're seeking to justify themselves. The whole point of this passage is they're seeking to justify themselves by the law. They're seeking through all outward appearances to justify themselves. They think that they've got it together so much that even if they were in days of old with their fathers and the old prophets, they would have had it together. They would have had it together, they're saying. There's a deep and deadly pride that has risen up in their hearts and in their lives. They think and they don't understand the whole purpose of the law because the whole purpose of the law is to bring us to despair of ourselves. The whole point of the law is to show us the character and the holiness of God, to show us that we're not worthy. The law wasn't here to show us as a way to make ourselves feel good about ourselves and to compare ourselves to others and to lay a burden on the people. The point of the law was to bring us to an end of ourselves, to show us that we don't measure up, that we don't meet the standard, that we need to come to a gracious and merciful God instead. And they totally don't get that. They think their pride is so clouded their thinking. They think that they know the word, the Bible, the regulations, the precepts so well, so much better than their fathers of old, that if they were there during their time, they would have not killed the prophets. And they couldn't be further from the truth. They're absolutely blinded by their pride. Their religiosity has driven them to such a point of pride and blindness that they are so self-deluded. They're absolutely self-deluded. And it's religion that's got them there. It's adding to regulations. It's the religiosity of the day that has got them to this point. But Paul will tell us in Galatians that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law was to bring you to an end of yourself. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. The law was to show them to despair of themselves and to long for the mercy of God that can only come to us through Jesus Christ. Our attempts to commend ourselves are always inadequate and are worthy of judgment because our attempts to commend ourselves show our self-justifying pride. Let's draw to a close. 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is our third point, the weeping. The weeping. So what's Jesus' conclusion at the end of these three, excuse me, seven woes? More indignation? More anger? Jesus' reaction and conclusion to this is more of one of heart-wrenching tears. This is Jesus lamenting over his people. This is Jesus sorrowful over his people. And Luke's account of the woes, it'll say that Jesus has tears in his eyes. Jesus is literally weeping 
over his people in the state of things. The way that things have become. This is the only non-hypocritical man who has ever come. He's in the city that ironically murders the prophets. We sang it this morning, sent of heaven God's own son to purchase and redeem and to reconcile the very ones who nailed him to the tree. Jesus is clear, these people have lost their chance. These people have lost their chance. But Jesus weeps. He'll tell us in Ezekiel that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. He weeps over the loss and the hardness of heart of these people. But we see the heart of the Savior here. We see the heart of the Savior here who doesn't grow with more and more indignation, but he weeps and laments. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the prophet. He is the king. He is the promised one. And he's even called himself a hen here. A tender and gracious language, that is. That for those of us the time has not been too late for, he calls us to hide ourselves in the shadow of his wings like a gracious mother hen. The sure and certain assurance that we can have, my friends, is not our own performance. The sure and certain assurance we can have is not from our religiosity. The sure and certain assurance that we can have is by hiding ourselves in his righteousness that he gives to us by grace through faith. And we're going to sing about it here in a moment. Humility, my friends. Humility is seen in the life of the Christian as hiding under the shadow of his wings. Acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of grace. And coming to the Savior who so graciously and who so lavishly gives it to us. This is what we're going to sing in a moment when we sing the song Jerusalem. Feel the earth shaking now. See the veil is split in two. And he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. What a Savior. Let us pray.